The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to A Guided Life Podcast, where we talk about all things spirit and life. I'm your host, Laura West. Follow me on Facebook at GuidedWest11, on Instagram at GuidedWest, and on Twitter at LauraWest111. I also have a website at www.laurawest.net, where you can download a free guide on how to meet your own spirit guides. My book, Guided, is available on Amazon, and it's about soul teams, intuition, mediumship, and spiritual tools such as oracle and tarot cards, crystals, pendulums, and so much more. My guest today is Marie Kalatung. Marie is living life to the fullest as she embarks on a journey of self-discovery and healing. She is a mother to two boys and a registered nurse. She is also an empath who is learning how to navigate in this world while healing her body, soul, and mind. After a diagnosis of stage four breast cancer, she's learned the important gift of each day and the remarkable ability the body has to heal using just the right tools through divine guidance from God, universe, source. Every day she practices gratitude for the many blessings she's been given and the time she's been given to spend with family and friends. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to talk to you about your journey and about where life has taken you. Uh, So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm really excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, I would love to start by talking about what kind of work do you do and a little bit about your life right now? Yeah, for sure. So I have two boys. They're they're very busy boys. Uh, they're seven and 10. Uh, so they keep me super busy. I have an awesome husband, Raf. He's wonderful. So in our little, in our family, in our world, um, you know, we're busy with, you know, soccer practice, Taekwondo, all those different things. Um, but, you know, the busyness is, is good. I like, I enjoy watching the boys have fun and, you know, move their bodies and just to be kids and have a fur baby, Yoshi. He's cute too. And so outside of my family life, I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse since 2001, which is crazy to think. So that's like, if it's, yeah, that's 21 years now. Oh, <laughs> wow. I always have to redo the math. You know what, I, I do too. I do too. So I get it. But wow, that's amazing. 21 years. That flies by, doesn't it? It's it does. It does. Honestly, that's why it's just crazy. I, I um when I think when I do the math, I'm like, is that right? I have to recalculate. But um and I know we share that in common, so I, I love that about how you and I connected as yes, well. Yeah. And my job is really cool because it brings me to learn about uh, the First Nations and Indigenous people of Canada. Um, so I work uh, with the government with and it's really allowed me to you know, have opportunities to experience the culture, appreciate the culture of the Indigenous people. And um, yeah, that's, I, I mentioned that because I think it's just such a big part of my career. When I say I'm a registered nurse, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, but what do you do as a registered nurse? And working with the communities is such a big part of of that part of my life and really a big part of me. Oh, yeah. And I think it's also a great uh, testament to the profession that you can really do so many different things, <laughs> you know, in nursing, which is so wonderful. It's not just what you would think, like working in a hospital or working in a clinic, like you could be working out in the community with different cultures as well, which I think is 
just so fascinating and just really makes somebody very well-rounded and very understanding and respectful of other cultures, which is very important, very important these days. So (laughs) I think that's so great. So can we go back now, knowing where you are in life now, can you take us back to maybe what your childhood was like? What sort of set the foundation for who you are today? Okay. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. Yeah. I was just thinking of the different things I was going to share and I thought that you might ask about that. So I did think. (laughs) And it's because it's true, right? It's kind of like who we are. It's our base. It's like our foundation. I have a brother. So I was, you know, there was the two of us growing up. He's my older brother and we're really close as being really best friends right now. Um, Growing up, he was such a big a big part of my life in that he he was just such a great like mentor he was kind of like a father figure because my parents worked a lot and um, he taught me a lot about the world and taught me how to drive and so <laughs> he was, he's just a, such a big part of my life I love him so much yeah so but he was five years older than me so I found myself you know finding my own fun so you know back then and I'm pro- it's probably the same when you were growing up Laura you know you just jump on your bike and you just you'd bike around for hours on end. And yes, I remember hours. doing that. Yeah, I did. And it was so fun. And it was just, I, I look back and I think that's awesome. Because, you know, I was really never connected to a, a screen, uh, you know, and I know that that's a big part of, you know, the kids growing up these days in a technological world. And it was just fresh air, right? And movement and imagination. And uh, I was a super sensitive kid. So I guess that's kind of the start of my understanding of myself, because I've really had to, to reflect on that, like, why am I the person I am today? And why am I so sensitive? Or where does my intuition come from? And all those questions, right, it really forced me to think back to when I was a child. And when I was a little girl, I, I was super sensitive. Just in hindsight thinking, I had a, it's so cute because I had a, um imaginary friend. I have, I'm, you can't see air it. In the podcast, but I, yeah, air quotes. So, and he followed me for a, a while and it's kind of, I say he, but it's really weird because it's, it's kind of wasn't an, an androgynous kind of, you know, imaginary person. <laughs> And he even had like a non, a non-gender name. Like, so his name, his name was Doby. D-O-B-Y is how I would spell it. But I'm sure as a child, I never spelt it. And so that's like neither a girl nor a boy. But he, she was around me, like for as long as I could remember until school. So when I'd be on my bike or when I'd, you know, be alone, I just kind of was never alone, you know, I was never alone because I, I had this he-she, this friend, and I don't know, I don't know why it gets, gets, gives me, you know, I'm getting warm inside, but, but it's because it's a good, it's a good feeling that I just, when I was physically alone, I was actually never alone, right? In hindsight, I believe that that was an angel, a spirit that was just with me, a companion. I wouldn't really say protector because Dobie was more the same age, like a peer. Uh, So like just having fun with that imaginary spirit, that that imaginary friend, quote unquote, or spirit. And thinking back, it's like, I think I was just a very intuitive child, which is very interesting. So for a long time, I said, oh, I had an imaginary friend. And then when I started to awaken, I'm like, no, you know what? I don't think that was imaginary. I think he, she was actually there with me. Okay. So that's so, that's really interesting. So first of all, this was pre Harry Potter, right? And I say this because Dobie's the name of the little elf that they, they, they like become, was he an elf? They become, they're like little uh, ser- life servant elves to whoever their master is. Oh. And so the one that Harry Potter I mean, spoiler alert, I guess. I don't know. Freed. <laughs> uh, his name was Dobie. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Actually, I'm not even a big Harry Potter fan. I think I watched the first one. And I, you know. Yeah, he wasn't in the first one. So 
Okay. Yeah. So how interesting. So I've never heard that name before till Harry Potter until now. So, so I want to <laughs> set that straight. Like that was pre Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Right? Because well, it wasn't like you had an influence for that name. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's great that you bring up imaginary friends because I think that there may be parents out there whose children have these imaginary friends. And as long as they aren't telling them to do bad things, uh, it may be something to entertain if you're still deciding where you are in this journey, but something to entertain that perhaps it is more than just an imaginary air quotes, imaginary friend. Uh, It could be something more so to maybe have a nice discussion with your child about it, you know, because that could, it could open up a lot uh, more for that, for that child, I think. Uh, So that's, I think that's really a great point. You brought that up. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. In fact, I think when I think back as to when he, he, she would, was like kind of fades from my memory, it is around like school age. And you know, it's tough, right? I think I might have told a few people about Dobie. Um, maybe family members. And of course, this is around like age five. And it's like, you know, of course, they can't see that person. So it's kind of a funny thing, right? Like, ah, you know, they minimize it. And they don't mean to be mean, or they don't mean to do that. But yeah, exactly. Like, it's such a great point, because he was he she was minimized. And I think that kind of like they talk about how children are so close to, um, you know, source and they're just so unfiltered. I kept on hearing, no, well, Dobie doesn't exist. We can't see him. And, and not again, not in a mean way, but it would like, it would come up. And so I think I started to kind of filter he, she out and which is like, yeah, it's such, it's such a good thing to bring up. Cause I think if you embrace that, then, you know, that child can en- enjoy that for longer. Oh yeah, absolutely. And be more open to spirit playing their mm-hmm. larger role in our lives, which they do. So <laughs> I was wondering if you could share with us culturally what you were brought up in to also maybe give whether it's like familiarity for the listener or just another part to add to the picture of who Marie was as a child. Yeah, for sure. So I'm Filipino Canadian. My mom actually is interesting story. She came to Canada in the first batch or one of the first batches of nurses that came to Canada from the Philippines. So she's a registered nurse as well. I love her so much. So she she came here and she tells the stories and it's crazy that she she made that move. I mean, English wasn't their first language. Tagalog was, so we're Filipino. She moved in the 60s and made that great big move across the ocean to a really cold uh, climate and country. And, and when it's minus 30 degrees Celsius here, I'm like, Mom, Dad, why did you pick Canada? Like, this is the most. This is like. The- oh my gosh, that sounds like terrible. <laughs> right? right, I'm like, oh, sorry, and I love Canada. Don't get me wrong, but it's just it can get really cold but from like <laughs> tropical Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there funny. must have so- been a lure. There must have been a reason. I can't wait to hear why. Well, it's anticlimactic, Laura, because it's. <laughs> say, you know what? I think it was one of the first countries that was welcoming, (laughs) you know, nurses. I'm like, sure, it's just that simple. You're like, did you do any research first? (laughs) Right, exactly. You were meant to be there. She was meant to be there. (laughs) And you know what? Obviously, it's worked out awesome. You know, Laura, you have to, I know you have friends here like me and the girls and you have to come visit us when it's Christmas time because then you'll know what I mean. I do. I don't know. <laughs> I do my research. <laughs> too cold, too cold. But yes, we love it here in Canada. Of course, our roots here. And um, yeah, mom came here in the 60s in the first batches, batch of uh, Filipino nurses. And she met my, my father here in Canada as well. So I was born in Canada here in Edmonton, Alberta. I really identify being Filipino, like with being Filipino, I have quite a few Filipino friends. And, you know, the the culture is really part of me, despite being born here. I had a chance when I was young to dance Filipino folk dancing. So that was really my big light bulb moment and big, I guess, 
awakening around what it meant to be Filipino, just because, you know, when you open your mind to the arts and like the dancing and just understand why things are the way they are from an artistic perspective, I think it just opens up your brain that way. I was really lucky. Our par- my parents, they would fly us to the Philippines and we'd visit Philippines to see family um, throughout my childhood. That that was a really big part of uh, me understanding what it meant to be Filipino, just because I would see the country and the people and be Im- immersed in the culture. Yeah, and as I was so lucky, my my grandparents, my grandmother, um, you know, she she lived a really long life, so we would go back and visit her and family members and relatives. Do you speak Tagalog? Okay, so the funny thing that you asked that because this is a st- another story upon a story. So when my parents had me and my brother, it was the '60s, so there weren't a lot of Filipinos, and it's kind of sad because I think they wanted to kind of. And in a loving way, kind of just like assimilate us into the Canadian culture because we were truly minorities um, at that time. And there wasn't a lot of diversity. So so when my brother, like I had mentioned, he's five years older than me, she would speak to him in Tagalog and I wasn't around yet. And in kindergarten, I think the story goes is that I think maybe she was volunteering at the school or it was a field trip. She would speak Tagalog to him and he'd say, shh, mom, they're going to hear you, which is kind of sad because even at a young age, I think my brother could tell that he was different because we looked different. And so I think that really left a mark on my parents. Like they just were like, no, you know what, if that's the best thing. And I don't even really know. I should pick my mom and dad's brain about this. But I think after having that experience, they're like, no, you know, we're just going to speak English. And yeah, maybe you thought that that would make it easier for us, you know, growing up here and being minorities. And so they never spoke to us in Tagalog. So therefore, I can't speak it to answer your question. But I'm so thankful because children's brains are sponges. I can understand conversational Tagalog. So if I walk into a room and they're speaking Tagalog, I can pretty much pick up not even only pick up, but understand and comprehend the conversation. If I were to pick up a book or listen to really deep Tagalog, it'd be tough for me. But conversational Tagalog, I can understand it. That's good. Yeah. You know, it's funny because similar experience with with my mom. She uh, was born in Korea and she decided not to speak to us in Korean, she would speak some. What when I ask her, why didn't you speak to us in Korean? Because I wish that I was more fluent in it. Uh, she would say that she didn't want to like confuse us, and I think probably yeah. part of it too was she was wanting to learn her English as well. It's just a choice that they made. They felt they were doing the right thing at the right at the time, but mm-hmm. it would be nice. But that's good. You know, you understand conversational. You you're you're ahead of me as far as that goes <laughs> with with my Korean. So. Did you grow up with any type of religion or spiritual influence? Yeah. So we uh, were, me and my brother were baptized Catholic. Yeah. So we grew up going to the Catholic church. That's kind of our background uh, there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So from that point, going through life, Mm -hmm. did you have other experiences or was life rather uneventful besides maybe, I don't know, high school and then nursing school, (laughs) whatever came next. Yeah. You know what? Pretty pretty uneventful. I mean, we're lucky. Like, we're very stable. My parents were pretty busy working, but they, they, you know, we would do family trips. And I think that was really their way of being with us and having that focused time. And yeah, you know, grew up in the Catholic Church. We would go religiously (laughs) every Sunday. And, you know, I, I identified with the Catholic Church. And to this day, there are definitely pieces of that foundation that I follow and have really embraced into my spirituality. And, you know, as I've grown and evolved to understand, you know, my background in being Catholic, it's kind of interesting. I was kind of having a conversation with our friend Mary Rose about this. I would never erase that part of my past because it really gave me the foundation of spirituality. I'm very 
this point close to Mother Mary. She's been such a big part of my life. She's been there for me, like through thick and thin, even when I, in hindsight, even when I didn't know she was there. But like when I think back to experiences, I'm like, wow, you know, she was just, Mother Mary's been there for me and it still remains here strongly. And just understanding about a higher power, about source, God, creator, I feel like if I didn't have that Catholic background, it might may have been tougher for me, um, just in my experience. So absolutely thankful for that foundation. And the kids, you know, I, I've i decided around that is, is that we'll try to embrace that foundation as well. And, and as they grow older, they can decide and they need to have their own journey around spirituality. But um, seeing as that seemed to work for me as a foundation, we're going to bring them up into the Catholic Church. Wonderful. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, deciding what works for your family and trying to emulate what has worked for you. And I think that that's great to give them a foundation. But then I love what you said about then letting them decide later, you know, how they want to build upon that foundation. So I think that that's so great. As parents, it's kind of what we're meant to do is we give them a, a stable foundation and then we let them fly like they have to sort of figure it out themselves at that point. Absolutely. So I do want to bring up your big life change yeah. that happened to you and what that was like and maybe just talk about that whole thing. So if you could maybe bring us through what life was like leading up to your cancer diagnosis. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So I was diagnosed with cancer. I was 42. Um, so that was two years ago. And, you know, leading up to my 40s, I would say, honestly, we didn't have a very unique lifestyle in that in our North American lifestyle, it's work full time, kids activities, extracurricular, try to find time for, you know, your husband or your spouse or your partner. <laughs> and then just like do that, like at a big spiral and do that. Like I I'm simplifying, we do that. And it's just like, there's pressure, right? So, you know, leading up to my 40s, I mean, we were doing that. We were kind of living life, a comfortable life. When I hit 40, I hit a bit of a wall. And mm, maybe I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but I do have insight around that. I reached 40, which, which I was very grateful for. But I did hit a wall, like I said. And I think I just mentally, I was tired from doing the burn the candle at both ends, kind of, so to speak, kind of lifestyle. I hit a bit of a depression. I think, again, probably for situational reasons, it was just like too much pressure. So I hit a bit of depression and I sought help for that, medical help for that. And I thought that that was my big thing, right? You always have to, I guess you hear you got to go through life and got to go through big changes. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe having that mental health crisis was maybe my big thing. And then we kind of continued on, right? I mentioned that because I feel like it was part of my awakening, my spiritual awakening, because I, I hit a dark point and then I started to search. But I, was, I really floundered. Uh, so it took a lot of asking questions. It took a lot of like, I don't know, researching, going within. I sought a lot of help. And you know what probably turned the corner for me is... I met a lovely person. I should mention she's and she she's in the uh, in the business of you know life coaching and spirituality. Her name is Rosalind Fung. She does a lot of work here in Canada. She's moved to BC, but she's like a, a doctor of psychology. And I was seeing her, and I think she was going through her spiritual awakening too. So if you're listening to this podcast, you should Google Rosalind Fung because she does amazing work around spirituality. Uh, so she introduced me to meditation and that was a big thing and meditation really opened my brain and myself to energy and you know understanding like a lot of things spiritual so I think meditation really was like the the door that I walked through that just really opened me up and so I began to meditate and there were a few things in my early 40s that happened that were traumatic that also, although they were traumatic, led me to understand myself. 
One was that I lost my cousin. He was uh, a pilot. His plane crashed. And this was in, I was in, again, in this time when I was going through my, my mental health stuff, I was in my 40s. It was really, really hard for me to recover from that. This is when I kind of put together my being an empath because he passed away. And when people pass away throughout my life, it's just been really hard. It was really hard for me to cope. It was always really hard for me to recover. You know, I took it, I took people leaving, you know, this world tough. I would internalize it so much that it would hurt inside, right? And so when Jeff uh, also passed away, it propelled me into trying to figure out about me because then through his loss and experiencing that and being into my 40s I was like I have to figure this out naturally I'm going to feel so like sorrowful that people leave me but maybe this is a big part of you know my sensitivity and like let's dive into this further so I talked to Rosalind Fung about psychology but also meditation so I was on a spiritual journey kind of before my cancer diagnosis for sure for sure for sure and I probably can go on and on and on just about that probably three four years span leading up um anyway so leading up to it though we continued to be just very busy I don't think I was very good at you know dealing with my stress at that point but I was learning I was definitely learning and then COVID hit in 2020. And in 2020, you know, of course, the world just kind of turned upside down. And we were living a very busy life with the kids. And then we all kind of called got called home. <laughs> like kids were called home from school. Um, me and my husband, you know, we couldn't go into the office. And, and this was, of course, everybody had that, you know. So in May, on my birthday, I found a lump on my breast. That is kind of like when everything started. Can you share how you found it? Was it like you were taking a shower or you, I don't know, <laughs> were getting dressed? How did you find that? I think that, you know, it could maybe could be helpful for, for women. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I found my lump in my breast um, in the shower, actually. So it was my birthday. I won't forget that. And you know what? Again, busy, busy. I was never good at doing self-breast exams, even being a nurse. I wouldn't do them on myself regularly. And yeah, one day in the shower, I was just, you know, feeling around showering. And I and I thought, oh, gosh, what is this? This is this is something. Because of the location of my lump, it kind of hid for a while. So it's right when you do self-breast examination, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, I'll feel around. And so you're at the top, you know, close to your collarbone and you're kind of feeling around, around your not so much center, but on the outside. But what I learned is it's so important to feel that center and feel behind your nipple. And that's exactly where my, my lump was, is behind my nipple. Um, and I think that's why it hid so well, because it's right dead center in the middle of my left breast. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So thank you for that. So you found the lump. And then what, what happened? What happened next? Once we found that, I was super proactive. I'm like, I told my husband and he was very reassuring because he thought, well, you know, you know, it could be nothing, you know, so let's get it checked out. Like, let's, you know, and so he was very good. Uh, but that was a bit scary because I think, um, and I don't know if this is my nurse brain or my intuitive brain, but I kind of was like, gosh, Marie, like prepare yourself for not so, so good news. So as optimistic as I am, I feel like I'm an optimist. I found that lump and I'm like, Oof, yeah, you know what? Like I, I feel like this is something. So I remember it was a weekend. So I went to see my doctor literally like three days later. And I said, I have this lump, you know, and he did an exam and did the reassurance thing, which was, I was thankful for. Um, but he, you know, he said, you know, lots of reason for lumps, you know, why don't I send you for a mammogram? Let's get it checked out. So I went for a mammogram a week later. And they said, you know, let's do a biopsy the same day. 
And so then this is when I was like, okay, things are getting real. Cause like, I'm like, gosh, you know, they don't just suggest that you get a biopsy in the same day. Right. So I quickly made the decision. Sure. Let's take a closer look. And so they did the biopsy right there, sent everything away. I had to wait another week. And I, it's so funny in hindsight, everything happened in weeks. It was exactly seven days after, <laughs> you know, step by step. So I got the result from the doctor. Again, a conversation that you'll never forget. And, you know, it's COVID, so he couldn't bring call me in. Um, and he called me on the phone, and my family doctor said, you know, the pathology report's in, and you, it's breast cancer. It's an invasive ductal carcinoma, and uh, we believe it to be stage two because you have a couple lymph nodes involved. Yeah, and I just froze. You know, I can't even say that I got tearful at that point. I just, I was just like frozen, right? And then I... I just said to him, you know, <laughs> I thanked him for the results. I said, thank you, Dr. Nizam, for the results. And thank you for telling me. And now we, we got to do something, you know. So so even then, I was kind of like, let's do this. Let's do this. I was very super proactive. And, um, you know, being a nurse, I knew a little bit about breast cancer. So I thought, you know, stage two, that doesn't sound so bad. So then he referred me to an oncologist. A week later, I heard from the oncologist. A week later from that, I was having chemo. I was being infused with three three like rounds of chemo so it was pretty quick Laura like it was pretty fast that whole like that first few steps uh I mean I say fast but in hindsight you know the waiting was a little bit tough uh but it was pretty quick before you know from the time of diagnosis to the time I was being actively treated you know, I, I tried to prepare the boys the best I could because I, you know, I knew that I was going to go undergo some physical changes. My husband was having a hard time, um, understandably, totally, because, you know, so scary. And, you know, all of us were kind of like, whoa, this is a big whirlwind. So I just tried to remain optimistic for them. But, you know, in knowing that it was stage two, I knew there was tons of treatments, options, and, you know, things. people actually are cured of breast cancer at stage two. So I wasn't overly freaked out, I guess you could say. So the first infusion happened, and that was probably the toughest. I lost my hair after seven days. And I honestly, I remained optimistic. And I think that helped me because I just thought, like, I don't want to don't go down that rabbit hole, right? And especially for my kids, I didn't want them to see me depressed or down or worried or scared. Because I was, they're, they're, they're still little and they were little and I didn't want to scare them. But I also made the decision for myself, Laura, to not really let, allow this to disrupt my life. I was like, you know what, I am going to forge ahead we're in COVID world, so I'm going to try to work from home. I exercised with a bunch of uh, good friends of mine pretty regularly. So I said, no, and I'm still going to try to do boot camp. So I like, even if I wasn't doing the, the full on burpees, I would be, I do the modified, you know, jumping jack or modified burpee. But I read, I had read also too, that that actually helps people through treatment, like to recover through these hard treatments, right? And uh, I'm a testimony to that because I went through chemo. And although I remember that first day infusion, like it was yesterday, I remember it because it was uncomfortable. I, for the most part, did pretty good through chemo in hydrating myself and keep walking and trying to exercise as best I could and keeping my emotions up. And I think like that was really the key to success through such a harsh treatment. I didn't uh, vomit once and thank you God and people ask me like wow what you didn't like I was nauseated at times but I drank like a fish Laura like I drank coconut water and like water like you wouldn't believe I did try Gatorade but it was just too sweet for me and I felt like I couldn't stomach it and in hindsight that's probably a good thing because it's, it's like made with sugar, right? Like that's the first ingredient. So a lot of coconut water, tons of water, and I drank like a fish. I just, I drank 
around the clock. And I still actually try to do that. Not not quite up to that t- degree, uh, but I, I think it helped me. Like it helped me to flush everything out. In fact, through chemo, like as I was being infused, I would be going to the washroom. And I, I feel like that was a good thing because you get so much of the med- chemical into your body and it's supposed to help you. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot of chemicals and I'm I'm small and I'm like, you know, your organs go through such a, a whirlwind in that in that treatment. And so, yeah, I just kept hydrated. Yeah. And we also were able to give you some nice energy healing, which yes. was really such a blessing and a privilege to be able to do for you. And that was really cool because um, Mary Rose, who's been a guest on the show as well, was the one to introduce us. And I met Mary Rose through an energy healing class. <laughs> so it felt so appropriate that she and I would would combine together and and do energy healing together which was gosh what such a such a sacred space that the three of us were able to create i, I mean i hate to use such a trite word as uh neat <laughs> but it was a neat experience to be able to do that and it just felt there was just so much so much love that came with being able to do that uh the three of us together thank you for mentioning that because that was such a massive part of my recovery as well um and that's when we met is when i was going through active treatment and oh i can't i i don't even have the words to thank you for that laura for the for the energy healing and Mary Rose and you, yeah, you do that combined <laughs> energy <laughs> healing from a distance, but it was so powerful. And just the generosity you had with your time to do that with me, it was multiple. It was multiple sessions. Um, and that certainly helped not only me physically, but emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Like I, although I am, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to be an optimist. I try to be positive. You know, things weren't fun, right? Like we were going through a tough time. Um, but the energy healing helped with that. It was just like, oh my gosh, thank you that I'm guided. And thank you so much that Mother Mary and Jesus are here. Just the reminders, right? It's just so, so very comforting. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. It always helps to hear it from like an, an outside party, <laughs> you know, because you may feel it internally. Like I know that they're with me, but to be reminded from outside, it's always so validating. It's so validated for sure. Yeah. Did you complete your chemotherapy and then did you have other treatments as well? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. So I had three rounds of chemo. They were spaced two weeks apart. The original plan was to infuse six rounds of chemo. And so I got through halfway. Um, And the plan going into this whole thing, because it was stage two, that they were going to do the standard treatment, which is chemo radiation and a surgery for uh, a, lo- a breast removal or lump removal, depending at that time how you responded to all the treatment. Not in that order, though. So typically, it's like chemo or radiation, and then to shrink the tumor, and then they surgically remove it. They they suggested I do chemo first because the lump was actually bigger and they said you know you're you're so small breasted that you know because it's two meters by three centimeters like because you have such such a small breast we we might not even be able to do a lumpectomy so why don't you do the chemo route first and then we see we could see if we could shrink the lump and then you'll be good to go we'll remove whatever's left and maybe radiation at the end and so I was like okay well that sounds like a sound plan so we went through the chemo but in the meantime um I was having scans so they were scanned my body, which is pretty typical, I think, um, for a cancer diagnosis, is that they'll scan the rest of your body to check if you have, you know, any other spots anywhere in your body. And I think my specialists and people weren't overly concerned because I didn't really have a high risk lifestyle. So speaking of my lifestyle leading up to this, I didn't smoke. I drank on occasion socially. No, I didn't have all the risk factors medically that you would say. Like I wasn't a smoker. I didn't work with like toxic chemicals. And so, you know, and I, they saw that I was, you know, a healthy weight. I was, you know, active and moving my body. So, you know, they thought, okay, this is stage two. We got this in the bag, Marie, let's go. Uh, But then, you know, as they do with all cancer 
clients or patients, they'll scan the whole body. And so as I was going through my chemo treatments, they, they CT and MRI me, and unfortunately, they found a spot on my liver. The spot on my liver uh, at the time wasn't very big. It was probably a little bit over a centimeter. But this is actually when things got really scary for me, Laura, because I was like oh man, they're like, this is not good, right? Because I already knew, like, this changes my stage. This changes my stage to stage four. So from, you know, um, May diagnosis, by the time they finished all the scans, I was bumped up to a stage four diagnosis, which is metastatic breast cancer. It's an advanced form of cancer when the cancer has spread past past the uh, primary tumor and has affected other organs. Uh, so that's when things got kind of crazy for me, for sure. So they stopped chemotherapy. They said, you know, they said no to, you know, no more chemo because for stage four cancer patients, we have a different line of treatment, a, tr- a different treatment standard. We have, my oncologist said we had, you know, we have better medications for metastatic breast cancer. So I kind of just followed his direction and yeah, I didn't go through the surgery or the the radiation at that point. And you know, that's when energy healing for me, my meetings with you were so they were they were so important to me from the beginning, Laura. But in that dark time, that when things were like really uncertain for me, I wasn't sure. I was still trying to comprehend this whole that stage four diagnosis. The energy healing with you and Mary Rose really truly helped me because at that point I I really needed reassurance. I was super, super scared. I was afraid for my family, my little boys, my husband. And again, like as a nurse, you know so much, right? And I'm like, and I worked in oncology for a bit and I'm like, shoot, this is not good, you know. But when I got the guidance from my spirit team through you, it was like it was just so, is such a gift. It was such a gift because sometimes I couldn't reassure myself, right? I was like, I couldn't, nobody could. Um, but then when I had those sessions and when they were coming through to our sessions, I was like, no, you know what? I'm being, I'm loved and I'm guided and I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know some, like I said, sometimes just getting that outside reassurance or validation can be can be really helpful, especially when you've sort of started to run on fumes from of optimism, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. trying the best you can. <laughs> so I do want to talk about now, you were offered a experimental treatment, right? Was that right for the for the liver? Yeah, you know what? It's um, it, it's a medication that was just kind of freshly off trial here in Canada. So it at that point it wasn't um on trial or experimental at that point, which is which was great. I was very fortunate. It was it was readily accessible for for myself and other people that were going through this diagnosis as well. So, but it's fairly new. It's called ribocyclib. I can't think of the other name for it because. Drugs have two different names, but um, ribocyclob, yeah. And so I was offered, it's a molecular targeted therapy. Um, my oncologist said it's the cream of the crop medication for metastatic breast cancer. And there are others. I'm not saying there are actually other lines of treatment, but within molecular targeted therapy, and this was one of them. And at the time, it was probably the, the newest one that was off trial here in Canada. Um, and he said, yeah, for some, it, it's a game breaker, right? Like for some, Marie, it, this will help you. But at the same time, he hesitantly, like, I feel like that's the medical, I don't know, world for you, right? I feel like they're very, they need the evidence, right? And I think they're maybe very careful. They did, he didn't want to give me a hundred percent guarantee that this was going to help me. So he was like, for many, it's helped people um, to, to uh, keep the spread of cancer away like so it it keeps you people stable that have metastatic breast cancer it keeps it from spreading onward to other organs and so this medication should be really good for you so that's what he offered me and then I went ahead with the medication and I'm actually still on the medication but at the same time I'm just like you know what I'm still scared I'm still fearful 
I feel like a sitting duck. I feel like a statistic. Like I just felt very powerless. Even when I was given this state-of-the-art drug, I was like in a very scary, dark place, which led me to kind of dig, you know, it led me to dig and find information on how to survive advanced stage breast cancer. Like that was like, if you could like figure, find a Google search, that was my Google search. And I was doing this at like, I couldn't sleep. So I was like doing this at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. It was a very dark time for me when I was when I was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. But I started to research. I started to connect with people that were long term thrivers, and they're not even surviving stage cancer, uh, stage four breast cancer. They're thriving past it. They're living their lives with their children, or do you know working their jobs, and you know, and uh, living long a long life like after five ten years 15 years I met (laughs) it's just crazy I come upon you know YouTube videos of people living like 25 years with metastatic breast cancer right like and I'm like oh my gosh like this is so this is so groundbreaking for me like it gave me such hope and when I found that hope I gained momentum again and I started reach I actually started reaching out to these thrivers and these survivors and this is like I'm so thankful to them because I would reach out to them on Facebook and they would answer my questions and they would talk to me and they would tell me that they believed in me and I'm so thankful for that because I, it was just gave me so much hope and it gave me that gasoline in my tank again. One thriver out here in Canada, I believe her name is Laura, I want to say Montgomery, but she ha- I found her um, Instagram and she was one of the first thrivers that I had heard of in Canada and she was happened to be on a similar medication to me. And she told me, I said, so what is like your secret sauce? Like, well, how are you? You have little children like me. And like, I see your, I see your Instagram and you're like living life and going on walks with your family and experiencing this and having birthdays. And, and she gave me so much hope and she's like, read this book. And I remember she said, read Radical Remission. And I, I got this book. I can't remember the author. And I'm sorry. It really, it, it really changed my life because then at my fingertips, it was like everything that uh, cancer patients that were given a very dire diagnosis. What did they do? Uh, how, and how? And and many of them reached a radical remission where they turned their condition around into healing, and in some cases, like total resolution of like healing like total remarkable healing and so I read the book from back to front and then again it was more gasoline in my tank and I'm like there's hope for me Um, and I I absolutely recommend if you're newly diagnosed with a, a cancer diagnosis and you're scared and fearful get this book radical remission it will change your life um, yeah, because it, it breaks it up into like diet, life, you know, what, what's in, you know, what in a lifestyle contributes to cancer? You know, so what did these people do to reach a radical remission? And that's what it was. It was like diet, movement, change your outlook, spirituality, you know, get, get, seek supports from family and friends or reach out to a friend. If you don't, if you're not into the big, you know, groups, like reach out to a friend that you can trust, right? It's so nice. It's like like a little encyclopedia in one, and it's like there. And I, I you know what? I have to pick it up and read it again because I think, yeah, it's just so inspiring, super inspiring. Well, thank you so much for for sharing that. So, where are you now in your journey of healing? Yeah. So, after all the research, after reading all you know, all the great information sources of information out there i i have scans in Jul- in july okay so that's kind of what's up next i get scans every four months but uh back when i was initially diagnosed it was supposed to be every three months so i'm really graduating to <laughs> uh i'm not getting scanned as much which is really great and my my spots have have shrunk down 
So they have shrunk down um, to a point in my last scan, they're using the words inconspicuous because I think that they can't even put uh, a dimension to it, which is which is awesome. Like, so um, I'm really excited about that. My breast spot is hard to see. It's hard to see. They can't provide dimensions for it. My liver spot, again, is, again, inconspicuous. So everything has shrunk down. And I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm stable. I don't have any other lesions in my body. Yeah, and I'm kind of just, I'm living a better life, I feel, with my my boys and my husband and my dog and my family and friends because I changed so much in my lifestyle that I'm just leading a healthier life and I'm living a healthier life you know and it's it makes me feel physically better like I feel physically better by all the changes that I've I've made now this medication is it something you'll be on lifelong they say it is long term they can't really they don't really say I think for, for it's a for now thing so I do take it. I take it for three weeks and then I take a couple weeks off and I just continue the cycle. But, you know, I really believe in modern medicine, but I also believe in healing at home. So I eat, you know, cancer fighting foods, Laura, from all my research and following, you know, cancer thrivers like um, a fellow named Chris Work. He healed himself from stage four colon cancer. And that was like over 10 years now and he's cancer free. But he really catapulted me into understanding about how food is medicine. I'm on a plant-based whole foods diet. Ever since I, I learned of the benefits of changing your diet, I did. And after I met Chris Work, he's an American, um, but he does a lot of work with cancer patients, um, people that want to heal from cancer. Ever since I found him, I changed my my life to being plant-based whole foods. I, I'm not perfect, and I don't think anybody can be perfect, but I have sustained a, a plant-based whole foods diet. So I don't eat any meat. Um, if I do have um, animal protein, it might be a little bit of salmon, um, but that's really rare on occasion. Like it might be a special, a special occasion, a special event. So really learning about foods that heal your body, you know, it helps. And I juice, so I do juicing and I try to eat a lot of, you know, fruits and vegetables and yeah. <laughs> Does your family eat like that too? Um, you know what? At first, you know, because I was just finding my way, I kind of, and I radically changed. I just stopped, stopped buying meat. I cleared the freezer of all meat. Um, at first they were vegetarian. And then I, I kind of, um, not, not for too long. I, you know, because I did the research and I'm not saying anything and I'm not, I don't proclaim to be a specialist. So I should say that on the f- podcast. But, you know, I made the decision to introduce chicken and fish to the boys because they're just growing boys. I know there's lots of families that are just only vegetarian, and that's awesome. Um, But my, my, my choice for myself and my family was to eat meat in very small moderation in, you know, being mindful, you know, mindful eating. Um, And if we eat meat, it's just chicken and fish, Um, me excluded, but that's my husband and the two boys will have chicken and fish. If they have, like just recently, we were celebrating Father's Day, you know, and and my my brother-in-law made hamburgers, beef hamburgers. My kids had hamburgers. And you know what, am I going to freak out or be overly concerned about? Absolutely not. You know, like they they still enjoy beef from time to time. Um, but, you know, if I could impart to them the fact that, you know, animals have sacrificed their life to give us this, to, to sustain us, you know, it's just the mindfulness of it, right? Like, because I think we we live in a world where we, that's kind of gone out the door. It's like, oh yeah, I'll pick up a, a whole thing, a, a whole flat or a whole case of you know, burger patties at Costco. And I don't know, they come in like batches of like, I don't know, 30, right? And you don't even think twice about where they, they come from because they, you know, they taste good, right? And I think that's kind of our society right now. So I just, for my kids, I if they do enjoy the, you know, meat, you know, I really want to impart to them like, yeah, in moderation, this is not something that, you know, we really should be doing like on an everyday basis for these reasons. And they, you know what, it's it's really, I don't know, they've learned a lot from it because I find that the boys reach for vegetables and fruits more, you know, they ask for them. 
And uh, just recently, Xander was like, Mom, can I have a bowl of salad? Like, I just like randomly like walked down the stairs. I was at my workstation, my office. And then I think I took a break from work and went down the stairs. He happened to be home. He's like, can I have a bowl of salad? I'm like, sure. (laughs) Oh, a proud mother moment. You're like, I'm winning at this thing. (laughs) Right? Oh, I I was really proud just because it's, and they, yeah, they're still kids that like reach for, you know, they'll ask for Cheetos and chips, but you know what, definitely the, the, the diet change and the lifestyle change has, has made a mark on them. And they're realizing that, you know, uh, food is important and you have to be mindful of what you put in your body. Well, thank you for for that. It's a good reminder, I think, for all of us to be more mindful and to not go not eat based on convenience, though healthy food can be convenient, right? If you prep it and everything like that. So you can make it make it convenient. And uh, I think it's a good way to eat mindful like that to also keep our bodies healthy. We may not have had a cancer diagnosis and are trying to heal from that, but we can keep our bodies healthy in hopes of maybe preventing something like that. 100%, 100%. Absolutely, Laura. Your story has been so inspirational on so many levels, even for someone like myself who, thank you, <laughs> God, source, everybody, I have not been diagnosed with cancer, but you still bring so much inspiration and hope. I do want to wrap up our interview and ask you, the Marie from today, after everything that you have been through so far, what advice would you give yourself, Marie, from your past? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know what? I just think back to that time when I was feeling like really scared and really uncertain. It's really, truly frightening. Like if I can find a definition for the word, it's like being told you have stage four at first is frightening. It's frightening. And I was, I was very um, scared and hopeless, really. And if I could go back to her, I would say, you're going to be okay. And, you know, the next two years, it won't be easy, but there's going to be so much growth. And you're going to learn so much about yourself. It's parts of it are actually going to be fun. And at the end of it, you're going to come out okay. And you're going to feel good. You're going to feel better, actually, than than when this all began. And that's kind of, yeah, that's what I would tell her because that's truly, that's truly how I feel. And I'm, I'm filled with gratitude that, that that's the case today. I'm so thankful that I'm still here and I'm well and I feel well. And I'm thankful that I can partake in birthdays and celebrate Father's Day and do the soccer games with the kids. I'm just so thankful for all of that. And I I would tell that Marie too, because that sometimes she would be like, why? Why is this happening? Why me? Why me? And a lot of cancer patients go through that in the beginning. It's like, why? And I would just say, you know, there's reasons for, for these tough times, but the why is because you're going to live a better life after this cancer diagnosis your quality of life is actually going to improve, which it has. And it's crazy to say that because it's hard to believe and it's hard to understand. I think if you haven't been diagnosed with cancer, I'm like living life and I, and I love it and I'm thankful. Are you just as busy as you were prior to your diagnosis? (laughs) Maybe you just have a different perspective of it now. You're like, oh, I'm so grateful that I can be busy. Yeah, it's funny you say that because grateful that I can be busy for sure. Um, Yeah, so sitting in the rain with the boys (laughs) during soccer, it's like mind cold. But I'm thankful that I can be here (laughs) to watch soccer, even if we're cold and raining. But yeah, it's certainly taught me gratitude. It's it's been quite the journey, absolutely. Like, so thankful. Um, but to answer your question about busyness, it's funny you mention that because I'm not perfect. And COVID, um, I, I'm not sure how it is in the states. I hear, I see that, I see that it's it's kind of going or gone away. Um, here in Canada, it's very similar in that 
quote unquote, it's gone away. Um, so, you know, things have opened up, people are getting busier. And I was talking to another mom friend and I'm like, gosh, you know, I just don't have that barometer of like, how do you tell like when it's too much or how do you know when you're taking on too much? Like we're so not practiced in figuring out that balance. Right. And June was super busy for me, Laura. Like I just, I think we maybe overdid it with the activities. So I'm still trying to find that balance. Now that COVID's kind of quote unquote gone away, I'm like, yeah, I got to figure out how to find time for myself and be mindful of overbooking because for two years, you, you, you didn't have to, right? It was like, it was almost like a blessing, right? It forced us to be not busy. But now that we have options, I have to relearn how to manage making time for rest. It's so important because I, I actually don't want to get back into that hamster wheel again, because I think that's kind of how I got in this. Marie, thank you again so much for your time and for sharing your incredible story and, and journey thus far and for being such an inspiration in everything that you've gone through. So thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that was another episode of A Guided Life Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, love and light always. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.